While you're turning to Titus chapter 1, I'll mention on the back page of the bulletin is an announcement about a midweek uh, class coming up led by Mike Kena, and we're, they're going to be looking at the five solas of the Reformation. If you say, what is that? That's all the more reason you need to go. Uh, this year, October 31st, is the 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, kind of formally starting the Reformation, significant change in world history. So you need to be informed about that. This morning I want to look at how to recognize an elder, and we're going to be in two passages, mainly Titus 1, 5 through 9, but also I want to read uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, a parallel passage, because I will be kind of referring back and forth to both of them. In Titus 1, Paul says to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer, and you notice he uses the word overseer uh, in parallel to the word elder in verse 5, so that's the same office. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, uh, not uh, pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And then over in First uh, Timothy chapter 3, we looked at verse 1 last week in dealing with just uh, who's in charge of the church. But Paul writes, it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Uh, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Uh, I was looking through my files trying to find an appropriate illustration to open this message dealing, uh, partly I was looking in the integrity file for the illustration of somebody who had integrity and uh, I paused to read an email that had just popped up as coming into my inbox and it was from a man I don't know and he was informing me that his 
former pastor, he had left that church, is plagiarizing both John MacArthur's and my sermons in his sermon. In other words, using them verbatim without any acknowledgement. I was, it was interesting because it was about the fourth email I've received in the last few months reporting similar situations. In another one, a pastor who was very broken and repentant emailed me and asked my forgiveness. And uh, in spite of my granting it and encouraging him to continue on, he ended up resigning from his church. Uh, in another one, the pastor of a fairly large church back east uh, was battling some critics who were calling for his resignation because they had discovered he was plagiarizing my sermons. And uh, I don't know the outcome there, whether he survived or they got him forced out. And then in still another one, kind of interesting, this pastor in Texas who was plagiarizing my sermons uh, wrote to ask my forgiveness, and then he sent a check to our church to... uh I guess, express his repentance. I hope it wasn't a guilt offering, but um, anyway, yeah, the check arrived in the mail. Uh, The question, though, I want to look at in this message is, uh, what qualifications must an elder possess? And it's an important question, and I confess in years past, uh, we have made some mistakes. We've we've put men into the position of elder who shouldn't have been there, sometimes with rather serious and tragic results. And so it is a very, very important question because a church is about as strong or going to be as strong as its leaders. And we want to recognize as elders those who truly possess the uh, scriptural qualifications. Now, last time we saw in looking at the question of who's in charge of the church, that Christ exercises headship over his church, and he does that through church-recognized, spiritually mature elders, and that their job mainly is to shepherd the flock of God. Uh, Originally, as we saw, the apostles appointed elders in the churches that they had founded, And then, as Paul sent out two apostolic delegates, Timothy and Titus, uh, he instructed them, as it said in our text there in um, Titus 1.5, that he would appoint, they would appoint elders in the churches. And Paul then gave them the qualifications to look for in these men who were to be appointed. Now, we don't have apostles today, and we don't have apostolic delegates, but we do have the inspired word of the apostles, namely our New Testament, and they left us these lists of qualifications. And so we want to study those this morning. The two lists are very similar. I don't know why they aren't identical, but they're quite similar. Uh, Interestingly, There are five qualities in 1 Timothy that are lacking in Titus and five qualities in Titus that aren't in 1 Timothy. I don't think maybe the lists are meant to be exhaustive, but Paul is giving these men uh, the main things they need to look for. The significant things about the list is that they don't focus on a man's gifts or his personality, or any of that kind of thing. 
And except for one qualification, the ability to teach God's word, it really doesn't look at any of that sort of qualification. Rather, it focuses on godly character. Um, In a book called Biblical Eldership, Alexander Strauch writes, What God prizes among the leaders of his people is not education, wealth, social status, success, or even great spiritual gifts. Rather, he values personal moral and spiritual character. So that is significant, that we are looking for men who have godly character. Uh, Yes, they should be able to teach, as I'll uh, explain in this message. Now, let me be quick to add, no man is perfectly sanctified in this life. I am not, as you well know, and uh, no elder ever is. It is a lifelong process, and so nobody is going to meet these qualifications 100%. It's kind of like the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, we None of us meet those nine qualities perfectly in this life. We strive for them and so on. Now, in the qualities of an elder, I think no man should be in violation, glaring violation of any of these, and they should be growing in them. And uh, it's interesting that almost all of the qualities prescribed for elder are elsewhere prescribed for every Christian, men and women. Um, And so we all should be seeking to grow in these areas. But especially this morning, my prayer is, some of you who are young men should, as we saw last week in 1 Timothy 3.1, say, you know, God has put it on my heart to aspire to the office of overseer. And if so, you ought to be growing in these qualities. Make a list of them and uh, pray about them and study them in the scripture and seek to grow. And also, as I mentioned last week, churches make a huge mistake when they put a man who's not qualified into office and say, well, we need to get Joe involved, so let's make him an elder. And Joe is not qualified to be an elder, and it's not a a good result. So as I said last week, rather, we're not voting on elders when we have a church meeting. We are trying to come to an agreement among us that, yes, we agree this man... uh, approximates these conditions, these qualifications of being an elder, so we are recognizing elders in our midst. And I don't like the voting language because it smacks too much of political campaigns. Now, I'm mainly going to stick, as I said, to the list in Titus 1, but I will jump over to 1 Timothy a few times. But from Titus, we can sum it up by saying that an elder must be a spiritually mature man of integrity, And the way you tell that is his home life, his personal character, and his firm adherence to Scripture. So first of all, let me comment on the fact that an elder must be a spiritually mature man of integrity. And two observations here. Uh, A spiritually mature man of integrity must be above reproach, Paul says, and Both lists begin with that qualification. He must be above reproach. In Titus 1, Paul actually states it twice. In verse 6, summing up a man's home life. And again, in verse 7, summing up his personal character. 
the Greek word in Titus is a little different than the one in 1 Timothy, but they mean essentially the same thing. What it means is there should be nothing in a man's life that people can bring a legitimate charge against and say, you know, I have this against him. He, he fails the test in this way. Um, it means he's a man of integrity. He's not living a double life where if you really knew what he was like during the week, you'd go, whoa, that's different than what he's like on Sunday. Uh, he would be a man who is not harboring secret sins. In other words, he judges his sin on the heart level because he knows God looks on the heart, not on the outward appearance. And uh, if he sins, and we certainly all do, he's very quick to ask forgiveness and confess that sin. So he's not a guy who, if you really knew him at home, he's one way. Uh, or maybe he's another way when he's out with unbelievers on the job or whatever, and then at church he puts on his uh, holy garb and looks like he's a Christian. No, he's true through and through. That's the idea of being above reproach. A second thing I want to observe under that heading is that spiritual maturity takes time and effort and discipline. We live in a culture where generally... Our culture is susceptible to quick fixes for problems that are not so easy to fix. I think you see it by the fact that there's an entire market of diet pills. You know, just take this pill and you can still sit on your couch and, uh, you know, eat chocolate bonbons and drink Cokes and potato chips and, and never exercise and you'll lose weight. Well, If people really were not suckers for a quick fix, they'd never buy such a product. But they're on the market and they do a business because we all want easy answers. Yeah, that'd do it. That's all I need. And I don't have to change because change is painful. It's the same thing spiritually. Uh, You know, spiritual hucksters promise all the time, read this book, come to my conference You know, uh, get slain in the spirit, speak in tongues, and your sin problem will be gone. And we all go, wow, that sounds great. Give it to me. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. There are no shortcuts. There are no miraculous experiences you can have that are going to give you consistent victory over sin. That's the bad news. The good news You can have consistent victory over sin, but it takes discipline. Ooh, discipline. Paul in 1 Timothy 4.7 says to Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Uh, Isn't there a quick fix? Isn't there a pill? Isn't there an experience? No, discipline. And it's an athletic metaphor. You know, here's a man, and he's training to run a race. He doesn't sit on his couch watching runners run races. I mean, he may study some techniques, but that's not the way you win races. You win races by watching your diet, getting up, working out every day. There are days he doesn't feel like working out, but he knows the race is coming. I need to be ready. So he goes out and goes against his feelings to work out anyway. And the goal for the Christian 
is a godly life that gives honor and glory to Jesus so that when we stand before him, someday we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And with that goal in mind, you say no to sin and yes to righteousness, no to the flesh, yes to the spirit. Uh, you, you spend time in God's word, not legalistically, but because you love the Lord and you want to know him and you want to please him. And so his grace and love is the motivation, but you, you discipline yourself. Now, every Christian should aim for spiritual maturity through discipline, but especially if you're a young man, you say, I really, by God's grace, would love to be an elder someday. All right, begin now. Start each day in the word and prayer. Spend time with God. Judge your sin. Begin to obey God. Memorize scripture. All of those disciplines, spiritual disciplines. So, first thing then, an elder has to be a spiritually mature man of integrity. And then Paul goes on to show that an elder must be a spiritually mature man as seen in his home life. Uh, He gives the description of being above reproach. And then in both lists, first up after that is a man's home life because it really is important. In 1 Timothy 3, 5, which we read, he explains, but if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, if he can't deal with the smaller unit, don't promote him where he's got more responsibility over the church. And I am afraid that there are many pastors who would be out of a job if churches um, consistently applied that criteria. How's his home life? That should be first when we are interviewing anyone for a staff position in a, in a church after checking out is the above reproach. How's his home life? What would his wife and kids say? Now, Paul mentions two aspects of home life. First of all, he says an elder must be literally a one-woman man. Now, there are many different interpretations of what does that mean. Some say, well, it means he can't have multiple wives. I think that's a given, but really polygamy wasn't a problem in the first century, and I don't think Paul was speaking uh, to mean that. Uh, Some of the early church fathers interpreted it and said, well, If a man is widowed, he can't remarry. I think that that requirement came more from a false asceticism, that is, uh, um, piling on legalistic rules rather than from the Bible that uh, encourages us that marriage is a good gift from God and certainly doesn't prohibit a, a widower from remarrying. Others more perhaps argue, well, a divorced man cannot be an elder if he is remarried. And most who take that view would hold it to a divorce that took place before the man was a believer. But I have actually heard uh, one prominent Christian leader argue, if you have ever been divorced, even before you were a believer, you are not qualified ever to be uh, an elder. Uh, I disagree with those interpretations. I think that Paul here is focusing on a man's present spiritual maturity, not on sins he may have committed many years ago. For example, maybe you have a man who in the past was self-willed, short-tempered, 
belligerent kind of guy, and maybe he was even addicted to alcohol. And he came to faith, and he repented of those sins, and he remarried, and now he is a godly man who has control over his temper. He's a man of love. He is not addicted to alcohol, all of that. Can he not be an elder? Uh, I, I just think that that is to impose a legalistic requirement that misses the heart of what Paul is saying. Um, as I said, the term is one woman man. And since all of the terms look at a man's character, his spiritual maturity, I think Paul is saying this has to be a man who is devoted to his wife alone. He's not a womanizer. He's not a man who secretly engages in lust after attractive women. He doesn't check out porn. Uh, he has victory over those sins in his life. And so a, an elder has to have a track work record of mental and moral purity where he truly judges his sin and walks with the Lord and he's devoted to his wife. And so here's the problem with the view that a man uh, who's been divorced can't ever be an elder. Say you have a man who maybe he's even a believer, but he's immature and in his 20s he goes through a divorce. And then Uh, You have another man. He's been married for 50 years to the same woman. This second man doesn't have lust under control. He's always lusting after women, flirting with women. He's online looking at junk that he shouldn't be looking at. Well, if it's just that he's never been divorced, he could be an elder. But this other guy, he has overcome those sins And he remarried, and now he's been faithful to his wife for all these years. He's a mature man of God. I would argue he could be qualified to be an elder. Uh, It's not a matter of checking off, well, was he ever divorced or not. It's a matter of looking at his present spiritual condition, that he is a faithful man to his wife. Also, by the way, this doesn't bar a single man from being an elder, Uh, Paul would have been prohibited, and Jesus. Uh, They were single, and yet, obviously, men of God who were uh, qualified. The second thing Paul says is that an elder must have believing children who are not rebels. In verse 6 of Titus 1, having children who believed, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And then in 1 Timothy 3, 4, he states it, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Again, that doesn't mean an elder has to have children, but if he does, they have to be under his control. But again, as with a one-woman man, there's a lot of controversy over, well, what does this requirement mean? Uh, For example, if you have a New American Standard Bible, an ESV, an NIV, in Titus 1, the, the word is children who believe. Uh, If you have a New King James Version or a uh, Christian Standard Bible, it translates it faithful. Also, the question is, does this refer to children who are still under their father's roof? Or does it apply to adult children who are out on their own? Um, I seldom differ with John MacArthur, but here I must. 
John MacArthur says that if a, a man has any children, whether still under his roof or even as adults, who rebel against the Lord and are not giving evidence of being a believer, the man should not be an elder or pastor. Uh, I know I could name several well-known prominent pastors who would have to leave the ministry if that is the requirement, and one who is deceased, that you would know his name. He wrote many books. Faithful, godly man had one of the most uh, fruitful and successful churches in America, and all of his adult children rebelled against the Lord. Um, the reason I disagree with John MacArthur on that is, it seems to me that puts the responsibility for a child's conversion on the father rather than on the sovereign will of God. And while a father can be a godly influence, a godly example, he can exhort his children, pray for his children, do all of the above, I know many, many faithful men of God who have children who have turned against the Lord, much to the parents' grief. So I don't think that's the meaning of it. I believe what Paul is is urging here is that we need to look carefully at a man's relationship with his children. Is he an angry man at home? Ah, that's a red flag. Does he model love and kindness at home? That's a good thing. Uh, Does he conscientiously train his children in the ways of the Lord? Reading the Bible and praying with his family on a regular basis. You know, if a man does that, then normally most, if not all, of his children will, will grow up to follow the Lord because they have felt the love of God coming down through their parents to the the children. And they go, that's the right way to live. They will see the reality of Christ, in other words, in their parents, but especially in their father. If most or all of the children grow up as rebels, you need to stop and examine that and say, what's going on? What's the cause of this? Uh, and, and maybe hold off on making a man an elder. Uh, on the other hand, if most of the children grow up and follow the Lord and, and then some or one turns away, I don't think that disqualifies a man from being an elder, but I'm just saying every situation needs to be considered prayerfully. Where we consider, is something going on? A pattern here that's wrong? Or is it just that this child is a, is a rebel? Um, also, when Paul says, having one's children under control with all dignity, there are some pastors I know who want their kids to be perfect models of obedience at church. I think that puts a burden on a pastor's family that is unbiblical. You know, kids are kids. And there isn't a child who has not thrown tantrums at age two and three and, you know, rebelled against their parents' authority and saying, no, I won't, when mom and dad say, yes, you will. That's just part of growing up. And a a godly parent just comes along and trains his child, corrects him if need be, um, but nobody has perfect kids, and so get that myth out of your mind. Uh, when, when Paul says, too, that he must manage 
his own household well. That includes all aspects. And another test for an elder is, is the guy in out-of-control debt? That's not a good sign. Um, He doesn't know how to manage money well. And part of overseeing the church is overseeing the church's finances. You don't want a guy doing that who can't even manage his own personal finances well. So that's a good check. And on our elder application, that's one of the questions we ask is, you know, are you in significant debt? And if so, what's going on there? So Paul's overall point is very clear. An elder has to be a godly husband and a godly father. And if his home life isn't in order, don't give him more responsibility. Send him home. Help him to manage his own home well, to have good relationships in the home. And uh, if that isn't going on, then he shouldn't be made a steward of God's uh, household here, as Paul says in uh, verse 7. Then... The next qualification is that an elder must be a spiritually mature man as seen in his personal character. And Paul goes on in Titus to list five character flaws that a man should not have if he's going to be an elder. And then he gives six character qualities that a man should have as an elder. And I have to hit these very briefly, of course. Uh, But first, the five character flaws a man should not have. First, He should not be self-willed, self-willed. This refers to a man who obstinately holds to his opinions, uh, who asserts his own rights, who doesn't care about the rights, the feelings, the opinions of others. He's just interested in promoting his own agenda, that kind of a person. Uh, Self-willed men often take a contrary view because they love to prove their point and to be right on every issue, that kind of thing. Uh, Never admits he's wrong, not a team player. So you don't want a guy like that as an elder. Not that he doesn't have convictions. We'll look at that in a moment. But he holds them carefully, holding to the essentials and being loving on the non-essentials. Second, an elder must not be quick-tempered. A quick-tempered man obviously uh, uses anger to intimidate, to control others, uh, to get his own way. James 1, 19 and 20 is a verse to memorize if you struggle with anger. It says, but let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Think of that the next time you're angry. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Uh, Patience and kindness and self-control are fruits of the Holy Spirit. And so you don't want a guy in as elder who's an angry man. Thirdly, an elder must not be addicted to alcohol. When it says wine, uh, that includes all alcoholic beverages. The Bible does not prohibit all drinking of alcohol, uh, but it does warn about the dangers of it, and especially for leaders. Drunkenness and addiction to alcohol are always sin. 
So if anybody is drunk, they're hooked on it, they've got to have their daily fix, they're in sin. Church leaders have a little higher standard, I believe, too, in that people look to us as an example. And say you have a guy in the church who has overcome a drinking problem, he's come to Christ, and uh, he goes out and he sees me drinking a beer or a glass of wine, and he thinks, oh, pastor does it, I'm good, and it leads him back into drinking. I think I have then been somewhat responsible for causing him to stumble. And so, as Paul says, I'd rather not drink wine or eat meat or do anything that causes my brother to stumble. So if an elder drinks, he has to be very careful uh, as setting an example to the flock. Fourthly, Paul says an elder must not be pugnacious. If you don't know the meaning of that word, it means not a striker, not somebody who hits people when he gets angry. And I think it can extend to being a man who is verbally combative. He just likes to use words to fight. Now, of course, an elder should never strike anyone in anger, including his wife and children. Um, What about spanking your children? Well, if you have to do that, you should be under control. You should not be out in a rage wailing on your kids. That is sin. If you think they need a spanking to correct them, that's different, but it should be done in control. So an elder shouldn't be a man who just explodes in anger hits others, or he should not be an aggressive bully verbally. Uh, I won't say anything about our president, but uh, he's not qualified to be an elder, okay? Uh, Speech should be kind and gracious and build up people, not tear into them. uh, Fifthly, an elder must not be fond of sordid gain. 1 Timothy 3.3 says he must be free from the love of money. Money is not evil in itself, but money is dangerous. I compare it to a loaded gun. Sometimes that's the main thing I would like to have on me. If a bear is charging at me, give me a loaded gun. But you've got to be really careful because if you don't use it rightly, it can hurt you, it can hurt others. You need to know how to use it. Same with money. Money can be a very useful tool in the kingdom of God, but it can be very dangerous. And in a couple of lessons from now, I'm going to speak about the church and money. But if you get a greedy man in as an elder, Paul says greed is idolatry, and the guy is going to be tempted, like Judas, to pilfer from the church. He's going to be tempted to embezzle funds, Uh, to take advantage of people financially in his business, uh, not a good example. So a man has to be free from uh, that love of money. Then Paul mentions six character qualities that an elder must have. First of all, he must be hospitable. And again, as with many of these qualities, every Christian is uh, enjoined to be hospitable. It's a quality we should pursue but especially elders. You know, if our elders are not friendly, the whole church is going to feel that coldness and it's going to percolate down through the ranks. Um, Hospitality just means taking a genuine interest in people 
and uh, making them feel welcome and at ease. And let me just say, if you're talking with someone on a Sunday morning and you see a visitor standing over there all by themselves, usually they make a bolt for the door, uh, unless your conversation is really vital, just say to the person you're talking to, excuse me, I, I want to meet that visitor before they get away. And go meet them or drag the guy you're talking with uh, to with you so that you can be friendly and hospitable to people. I've heard stories of people who picked a church because the first Sunday they went, someone in the church invited them either home for a meal or out for lunch, and they felt welcomed. And often that is the door that opens for spiritual transformation in hearts is just that act of hospitality. Uh, So that's incumbent on elders. Secondly, Paul says an elder must love what is good. That means negatively, he doesn't fill his mind with all of the filth that floods into our world through the media, through television and movies and online. Uh, You've got to be a filter to say, no, I don't need to read that garbage or look at that stuff. Positively, as Paul says in Philippians 4.8, he sets his mind on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, Paul says, dwell on these things. Thirdly, an elder must be sensible. Uh, I don't know why, but the New American Standard Bible translates the very same Greek word translated sensible here in 1 Timothy 3.2 as prudent. Um, I don't know why they weren't consistent. But it means to be of sound mind in the sense he's not impulsive. He's not led around by his feelings where he goes here and there and just does whatever grabs him. But he is level-headed. He thinks through issues before he acts. Uh, he's not given to fluctuating emotions. And he lives in light of his priorities, his commitment to Christ and to his church. Fourthly, an elder must be just. And that word can be translated as righteous. But I think in this context, it probably refers to a man who is fair and equitable with all people. Uh, he's not partial to the wealthy He is not ignoring the poor or treating them, looking down on them. He recognizes every person is made in the image and likeness of God. Every person should be heard. Uh, He weighs the facts of a matter. He's impartial on decisions based on the evidence. Then fifth, an elder must be devout, which means holy or separate from sin and evil behavior certainly doesn't mean separate from sinners because our Savior was holy and yet the friend of sinners. And so we need to relate to those who don't know Christ uh, but not carouse with those people in their sin or in their uh, lifestyle. A devout man takes God's word seriously and uh, lives in obedience to it. And then the sixth quality an elder, Paul says, must be self-controlled. And he uses that word in 1 Corinthians 9.25 to refer to an athlete who is, again, disciplining himself 
because he wants to win his event. He wants to win the prize. And so he doesn't do anything that gets in the way of his goal. And it means that an elder has to have as his goal, I want to know Christ more deeply. And I want to be a faithful shepherd over his flock. So anything that interferes with that, sorry, no. He says no to that. He's disciplined to spend time with the Lord in the word and and prayer each day. And as you know, self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So he walks in the Spirit daily. I have an entire message on um, learning to control yourself that's on the website if you're interested in listening to or reading it. So an elder then must be a spiritually mature man of integrity. That is seen in his home life. It's seen in his personal character. And then finally... An elder must be a spiritually mature man as seen in his firm adherence to Scripture. And again, I've got an entire message on Titus 1.9. So here I'm just giving you uh, a very short summary of it. But Paul says three things here. First of all, he says an elder must hold fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching in verse 9. And that means that he's devoted to God's word. That's his standard. To be devoted to God's word means you have to understand God's word, which means you have to study God's word, and it's a lifelong process, of course. Holding fast also means he's got biblical convictions. As I've said before, we need to be discerning. This is a core issue I will not budge on. This is maybe a secondary issue. It's important, and I'll fight for it, but I have to give some grace to others. And then there are those issues that really are not that central to the gospel. Uh, Regarding morality, an elder doesn't go with the culture. He goes with the word. And our culture is flooding us right now with uh, the message that homosexuality is suddenly okay. An elder says, you know, I love God and I love people and I can't agree with that. It damages people. And so in love, he, he holds to biblical truth. He doesn't love controversy, but when it's necessary, he takes a stand and says, you know, here is the word of God. This is our godless culture. I'm going with the word. He's a man of conviction. Secondly, Paul says an elder must be able to exhort in sound doctrine. False doctrine damages people. And Satan has flooded the church from day one with false teaching. It's all through the New Testament, warnings against that. Now, again, in our day, there are many Christians who say, oh, doctrine, yeah, that's kind of divisive, and it's kind of boring, just give me the practical stuff. But the Apostle Paul didn't think so. Virtually every letter he wrote to churches, he spends the first part of the letter dealing with doctrine And then having established that foundation, he says, therefore, here's how you live. And the last part is practical. And remember, Paul wasn't writing the doctrinal sections of his letter to theologians and seminary students. He was writing to common people, many of them slaves. They didn't understand a lot. But Paul said it's important for these uneducated people to understand biblical truth, core doctrine. And so he always laid that foundation. 
Uh, exhort may mean, sometimes it means to urge someone to repentance or obedience, to change. Sometimes it has the nuance of coming alongside to encourage or comfort someone, and you have to just read that word according to the context. And then finally, an elder must be able to refute those who contradict. Uh, In other words, you can't just be positive all the time. If error is there, lovingly, you have to come alongside and say, hey, you know, I care about you, and I just see you on a road toward destruction. There's there's a a waterfall ahead. If you keep floating down this stream, you're going to go over, and it isn't going to be pretty. And so in love, you come alongside and say, hey, you need to turn back to the Lord. And we shouldn't be needlessly offensive, but so many times pastors are so nice and so polite that they don't correct when they need to. And love corrects. I uh, grew up in a couple of churches, one till I was about 18, and then our family moved to another church. And sadly, in both of those churches, the lead pastor should not have been in that position. They were not men of godly integrity. The first one was a self-willed, angry man. Uh, He ended up leaving his wife and five children and running off with a counselee and then subsequently became an alcoholic and just totally denied the faith. Uh, We moved over to another church at that point. And uh, I was a naive 18-year-old who went to a church meeting that was announced as, if you're interested in uh, the future of the church, we're going to have a meeting. I didn't know what that meant. So I showed up only to find out that that meant they were talking about the fact that the pastor was carrying on with a number of women in the church, including the wife of one of the staff members. He left that church, and rather than leaving the ministry as he should, The denomination just moved him to a big church back in the Midwest that didn't know about his past. And uh, I think that's just tragic that that happened because neither man was qualified to be in church leadership. And the problems they caused just left a trail of misery uh, misery in the wake afterward. Uh, Those churches were Baptist churches that didn't have um, elders, but my dad often served in the leadership as a deacon. And by way of contrast with those unqualified men, you know, my dad left us kids a legacy of integrity. I spoke on that at his funeral because as I thought about my dad's life, he wasn't really deep. Uh, in terms of his knowledge of the word and that kind of thing. But, and he was a blue-collar worker. He worked as a painter almost all his life, along with doing janitorial work. And I worked with him many, many years. And the thing about my dad was, whatever you saw on the job, at church, was the same as at home. He was just of one piece. He was a man of integrity. And Paul is saying that men who lead as elders in the church, need to be spiritually mature men of integrity. And the way you can tell is their home life, their personal characteristics, and their adherence to Scripture. And so as a church, if we see men like that, 
Those are the men we want to recognize as elders in this church. Let's bow together in prayer. And if you're here and maybe you're not familiar with what it means to be a Christian, let me just say you can't be a person of integrity in the biblical sense until God changes your heart. And the Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And being a Christian isn't a matter of just cleaning up your life and um, making moral resolutions to be better. It's a matter of crying out to God for a new heart and being what the Bible calls born again. The Bible says that Jesus came and lived a perfect life as the eternal Son of God. He took on human flesh. He obeyed God perfectly, and then he offered himself on the cross as the penalty, the sacrifice that we should have paid. And that means that God is free to impart eternal life and forgiveness of sins to every sinner who trusts in Jesus. And that's the main need. That's where you begin with God, is coming to the cross and saying, Oh God, I've sinned, and I cannot erase that debt of sin myself, so I turn to Jesus and trust in him. Father, I pray that any who don't know Jesus would not think that being a Christian is living a moral life but recognize that it means being born again and that they would seek you, trust in you, and experience that new birth and then begin to walk with you and grow in godliness. Pray you would raise up godly leaders for this church and for all the churches in Flagstaff that seek to know Christ and follow him. We want our church, Lord, to be a testimony of your grace. And so we ask in Jesus' name, amen.